Thank you. Thanks, Cole, for the invitation. Thank you all for being here this afternoon. I'm impressed at how many people are here on a beautiful, if slightly toasty, <laughs> Saturday afternoon. It's probably not how I would have spent a Saturday afternoon when I was in college, but I'm grateful for you all being here. Um, happy Easter. Uh, I hope you all know we're still in Easter. For Catholics, Easter lasts eight days. And the Eastern Church has this great um, greeting where you say to somebody, Christ is risen. Do you all know this? And the response is, indeed, he is risen. Um, I can think of no more fitting time to talk about this topic than during the Easter octave, because the resurrection is at the very heart. It was at the very heart of the early Christian preaching, and it's at the very heart of the Christian faith today. In the first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul writes, If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. And in the verses leading up to that statement, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, if Christ is not raised, then Christianity is a sham. Right? Your faith is pointless, you're still in your sins, we're a bunch of liars, and your loved ones who have died are gone. And that's it. So a lot hangs on whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. Uh, and you will not be surprised to hear that I think he really did, and what I want to do this afternoon is to give you some reasons for why I think that and why I think people should believe that. Uh, it might be helpful to give you just a roadmap of how I'm going to proceed in this talk. So I'd like to begin with a couple of preliminary issues, so things that aren't directly about the resurrection but uh, relate to how we might think about it. So I want to talk about miracles and about the nature of proof. And then from there, I'd like to go on to say something about what we actually mean by the word resurrection. It might seem silly, and it might seem self-explanatory, but there are a lot of silly people in the modern world who have strange ideas about the resurrection, what the resurrection means. From there, I'll talk a little bit about what people traditionally refer to as the empty tomb. I think that phrase might be a little bit misleading, not for the reasons you might think, <laughs> so don't worry, but uh, I'll say why I think that when we get to that section. And then I'll talk a little bit about the appearances of Jesus to various people in those 40 days, uh, roughly 40 days from his crucifixion to uh, the ascension. And then uh, lastly, I want to say a thing or two about some other historical contextual issues that uh, also contribute to why we should think that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So to begin with these preliminary issues, um, C.S. Lewis begins his classic study on miracles by talking about a woman that he met, the only person he ever met who claimed to have seen a ghost. Now, the interesting thing about this woman is that prior to seeing the ghosts, she said that she didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. She thought that once people died, that was it. And after she saw the ghost, claimed to have encountered this ghost, she remained steadfast in her unbelief in the immortality of the soul. Lewis begins the book with this story about this woman for a couple of reasons. First, it shows that seeing is not believing. <laughs> we can see things, and human beings are great at explaining away what we see, particularly if they don't fit with the way that we see the world, the way that we understand how things go. The other reason Lewis begins with this story is to point out that our, excuse me, <laughs> our philosophical presuppositions set limits to how we interpret our experience and history, right? This woman categorically excluded the possibility of the immortal soul, and so even seeing a ghost didn't change her opinion on that. And Lewis uses a common example in my field, in the field of the New Testament. If you look at 
countless commentaries on the Gospels, you will see arguments that because the Gospels refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, they must have been written after the year 70. Why? Well, because people can't predict the future. So these scholars suggest they categorically rule out the possibility of predicting the future, and therefore the Gospels must have been written after the fact. The irony of that, of course, is that with respect to the destruction of Jerusalem, you didn't really need the supernatural gift of prophecy to see how things were going to go. Any astute political prognosticator could have seen the way that there was constant strife between first century Jews, particularly in Palestine, and the Roman Empire, that things weren't going to end well. Uh, but regardless, um, if you rule out the possibility of miracles, you're not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so um, all of the arguments of the, that I make this afternoon would fall on deaf ears if you categorically ruled out miracles. Now, the second thing I want to talk about before actually getting to the resurrection is this question of proof. I've noticed over the past couple of years, maybe it's unique to my teaching at Providence, but students like to use the language of proof, and so someone proves this. Um, and you'll see this, especially in apologetics concerning the resurrection, especially among Protestants, but it can seep into Catholic um, apologists as well. When I was an undergraduate in the mid-90s, there was this book by an evangelical apologist named Josh McDowell. Anybody heard that name? It's kind of a big thing in the 90s. And he had this book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Right? As if, if you can pile up enough arguments, then you can just strong-arm somebody into saying, okay, yes, Jesus must have risen from the dead. That's the only possible explanation for the data. Um, I don't think that's a helpful way of approaching the question for a variety of reasons. Uh, and it might help uh, in thinking this through to think about other areas in which um, proof actually makes more sense. There are other fields in which you can speak of proof. Um, science, I think, is a realm in which it makes sense to speak about proof. You're dealing with empirical realities that you can observe, and you can conduct experiments uh, repeatedly, accounting for variables and all that, and you can come to um, a reasonable proof of something. Say that the Earth is round. Now, the funny thing about this is, have any of you heard about this documentary, Behind the Curve? Okay, you're familiar with it. Yeah, it's, this, it's a documentary about flat earthers. They're out there. <laughs> uh, and there are probably more of them today than there were in antiquity or in the Middle Ages. It's this modern myth that ancient people thought that the world was flat. Cole, have you seen the documentary? Yes. So you remember how it ends. It's amazing, right? Yes. So they're going to prove that the Earth is flat. So they set up this experiment where they put up like a board with a hole in it um, at one end of a field, and they have an identical board with a hole at the same place, and they set it up, I don't know how many, several hundred meters away or so, and they're supposed to line up, and they light a, uh, they send a, like a laser beam through the hole, and the idea is that it's going to go through both holes, because the Earth is flat. Anybody care to guess what happens with the laser beam? <laughs> it's a little bit off. And so what do the people say? Huh, that's weird. The Earth is still flat, though, right? <laughs> Again, this is a great illustration of how your presuppositions can limit how you interpret data. Other fields where it makes more sense to speak about proof, mathematics, right? Here you're dealing with things that are not time-bound, uh, theorems, things, I don't know, it's been ages since I've taken geometry, I'm not, I'm not gonna pretend to know, but I know that in mathematics you can make proofs, or in philosophy, particularly in logic, 
right? The classical examples of syllogism, all human beings are mortal, Socrates is a human being, therefore Socrates is mortal, right? And so provided that the premises are sound, then yes, you can give a demonstration and make and prove something. How would you prove that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon? How would you prove that Julius Caesar existed at all? Can you really prove that? Not really, right? History is not so much about proof as um, sifting through testimony and determining what testimony is more and less reliable and what's the best explanation of the evidence that we have. And so I think that's a better way of approaching the question of the resurrection. Uh, another reason, there's also a theological reason for um, avoiding the language of proof, and that's because there are certain truths of the faith that we can't prove. The First Vatican Council says there are certain things that can be known only by revelation. For example, you can't prove that God is a trinity, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't prove the incarnation. Even if you were blessed to live at the time of Jesus, how would you prove that that man or that baby in the crib, in the manger rather, was God in the flesh? You can't really prove it. It's something that is revealed. What we can do is show that it's reasonable to believe these things. And so that's my modest goal this afternoon, to show that it's reasonable to believe that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. So what do we mean by the word resurrection? As I said at the beginning, it might seem like a silly question, right? And to the early Christians, it would have seemed silly. They all knew what they meant by it. Opponents of Christianity knew what they meant by it. Um, but in modernity, people have come up with these strange uh, well, one in particular, one strange idea. How many of you have heard, have you heard somebody say, well, Jesus rose in the hearts of the disciples or in their Easter faith? Yeah, right. <laughs> this, this is a way that's it's a common thing that developed. I don't remember when the first time it came up was, but um, to say that that's what resurrection is, is really to evacuate the word of any meaning whatsoever. I have more respect for an atheist or an agnostic that says, no, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Than for somebody who said, you know, yeah, he rose in their hearts. Or what the resurrection means is that Jesus is with God. Um, my dad died about 13 years ago, and I believe and I hope that he's with God, but I wouldn't say that he was resurrected, right? Resurrection is something else. Okay, other things that people might say the resurrection refers to um, the appearance of a ghost. Um, this is clearly not what the New Testament writers think by the resurrection. They had, there are several examples in the New Testament where the disciples think that they see a ghost, and that's different from, um, from resurrection. So, for example, in Mark chapter 6, when the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus comes walking towards them, they're terrified because they knew how bodies work. <laughs> the ancients weren't stupid. They weren't gullible and didn't just think, oh, Oh, there's Jesus. It's a miracle. No, they thought they were seeing a ghost, right? Or in Luke 24, one of the resurrection appearances, when he first appears, they think, oh my gosh, is that a ghost? And he says, no, give me a piece of fish. I'll show you. I have a body, right? Uh, and you even see this, for example, with respect to Peter in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, after he's been arrested, you probably know the story, an angel gets him out of the jail and he comes and knocks on the door and the woman, I think Rhoda is her name, like just runs and tells them, hey, it's Peter. <laughs> and they're like, no, it's just his angel, his ghost. Right? That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about resurrection either. 
Resurrection also doesn't mean a simple resuscitation. Although here we're getting a little bit closer to the reality of what resurrection is. There are stories of several people in both the Old and the New Testament being raised from the dead, right? The prophets Elijah and Elisha both raised somebody from the dead. Jesus raises several people from the dead. Jairus' daughter, uh, the son of the widow of Nain, Lazarus. All those people, though, returned to life as we know it. They had corruptible bodies, they got sick again, they, their bodies could break, and the poor people had to die a second time, right? That's not what resurrection means either, although again, it's closer to what we mean. What the Christian faith means, what Christians mean when they say that Jesus rose from the dead, is similar to resuscitation in that Jesus' body and soul were reunited, but it's different in that that body and soul were transformed and glorified, and that unified person was made incorruptible, right? Would no longer have to face death. You will never die. The New Testament speaks about this in a number of ways. So the so-called letter to the Hebrews uh, talks about Jesus having an indestructible life. In the letter to the Romans, Paul says, For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So resurrection has to do with the body, but it has to do with a transformation of the body and the reunification of body and soul in this new glorified state. Now, in order to believe that this actually happened, you need two things, neither of which is sufficient in itself. You need what people typically refer to as an empty tomb, and you need appearances, because neither of them by themselves would demonstrate, I know I said you shouldn't say demonstrate, but they wouldn't point to uh, an actual resurrection. All right, I said at the beginning that empty tomb is maybe a misleading phrase. It's not because I think Jesus' body stayed there, but because there's a very interesting article that came out a couple of years ago by Mark Goodacre, who's a New Testament scholar, a very highly renowned New Testament scholar at Duke University. Uh, and he wrote this article with the title, How Empty Was the Tomb? And what he argues is that, contrary to what most Christian art suggests, Jesus wasn't buried in a tomb that was just for one person. If you do archaeological studies in, uh, in Palestine, which they have done, you will have these massive or at least large tombs that would fit like five or six different family members. Right? And this explains a lot of interesting things about the Gospels, like the fact that they can actually walk into the tomb and stand up and look around, or that the angel or the young man, depending on the Gospel account, says, look, look at the place where they laid him because there are other places where he wasn't laid. Um, regardless, in order to have the resurrection, the spot where he was laid, if not the entire tomb, had to be empty, right? If the, if the body was still there, then you don't have a resurrection. Now, of itself, an empty tomb doesn't prove anything. There are other possible explanations, the Gospels, alluded, or not, they don't allude, they refer to a couple of other explanations for the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene in John 20 thinks that somebody's stolen the body, right? In Matthew's gospel, the Jewish leaders say, well, tell people that the disciples took the body while you were asleep, that sort of thing. So, of itself, it doesn't prove the resurrection, not that you can prove that at any rate, but 
it is necessary to have belief in the resurrection. So why should we believe that the tomb was empty? What's the evidence in favor of this? Well, first you have implicit evidence in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Right there he says that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. Now he doesn't explicitly refer to an empty tomb, but by saying that he was buried and then talking about him being raised from the dead, for a first century Jew that would mean that the body was no longer in the tomb. Now the Gospels, uh, they attest to a missing body, and there are good reasons to take them seriously. So one reason, uh, N.T. Wright, a well-known New Testament scholar, uh, former bishop, Anglican Bishop of Durham, points out, well, he argues that these accounts must be pretty early. And the reason that they must be early is because there are very few allusions to the Old Testament in these accounts, in the accounts of the empty tomb, particularly in contrast to the Passion Narrative. We just heard two of the Passion Narratives a few weeks ago, Holy Week, and the Passion Narratives are saturated with Scripture. Right? There are allusions to and citations of the Psalms, of the prophet Zechariah, of various other texts from the Old Testament, but not the accounts of the empty tomb. They're actually pretty sparse and bare bones. Now, another reason to take the empty tomb seriously is that it was susceptible to, as I already mentioned, susceptible to various interpretations. And there were other stories going around among the Jewish leaders, among other opponents of Christianity, who would say, look, they just stole the body. They didn't deny that the, um, the burial spot was empty, but they just said there was another explanation for it. All right, another reason that perhaps we should take it seriously is um, because of the people who the Gospels say discovered the tomb. Right? In each of the four Gospels, the first people to discover it are women. And sadly, in first century Judaism, uh, women's testimony was not taken all that seriously. There's a first century Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus who says, him, not me. <laughs> Let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. If you were going to make up a story about an empty tomb, you would not, in the first century, <laughs> again, them, not me, <laughs> um, you would not make your first witnesses women. You can see evidence of this even in the Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, when the women come back and say, uh, that the, while well, they report what the angel told them, and the disciples take it as an idle tale, right? that they don't believe the women. So this notion that women were the first people to discover the tomb probably goes back to a very early tradition. There's no reason for the early Christians to have made that up, particularly in light of um, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul lists a number of people who were witnesses to the resurrection that he doesn't list any of the women. So the empty tomb is necessary, but it's not sufficient to have a resurrection, right? Because again, the body could have been taken uh, or any number of other places that it could have gone other than just being uh, resurrected. You also need appearances which again, by themselves, are not sufficient, but they're necessary, right? Because there are lots of ways that you could explain appearances. Right? It could be a hallucination, could be wish fulfillment, that sort of thing. So why should we take 
these appearances seriously. No, and incidentally, if you didn't have the empty tomb, um, say the body was still there, but you had these appearances, you still wouldn't have resurrection, right? Now, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily hallucination. There are lots and lots of stories of people who claim to have seen a loved one who passed, who's passed away, and I would say that all of them are true, but given the number of them, it seems like that at least some of them are true. Um, so why should we take the appearances seriously? So first, you should consider the character of the witnesses. First, it wasn't just like one or two people. There were lots of people who were said to have seen Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve, then to more than 500 disciples at once, then to James, then to all the apostles, and then to Paul. Right? So there's lots of people who allegedly saw Jesus. The Gospels give different accounts. They speak about various women, some disciples, they give different places, that sort of thing. And the interesting thing is that there's no attempt in the early church to reconcile the data. Right? This is one of the things that skeptics will point out. Well, they contradict each other, so it can't have happened. Well, I would be a lot more suspicious if it matched up perfectly and really neatly, because that has the smell of a conspiracy theory, right? But the fact that it doesn't fit up quite so neatly actually points to the honesty of the accounts, I think. Also, the witnesses that the early Christians point to are unlikely for a variety of reasons. I already mentioned what some first century Jews thought about women's testimony, so that would have been unlikely. Also, St. Paul. Right? People try to say that the appearances were just wish fulfillment. Paul had no wish to see Jesus. He was not grieved about Jesus' death. He was trying to destroy the movement that Jesus had founded. Right? So his testimony can't be explained by any of the common explanations that are given for, uh, for these appearances. Right? In addition to the character of the witnesses, it's important to consider the timing and the number of the witnesses. Right? It's not like it was just one or two people just at a one-off event. That you could easily chalk up to like, okay, wish fulfillment, or they were seeing things, or it was something they ate, or any number of other explanations. But according to the New Testament, Jesus appeared multiple times over a span of 40 days to, if you believe Paul, more than 500 people, <laughs> several, you know, a few hundred people indeed. Uh, maybe closer to 550 or so, give or take. So, yeah, numerous times over a span of many days. That makes it a lot less likely that it was a hallucination. It's also interesting to consider the character of the appearances. Um, on the whole, on the whole, they're relatively ordinary, especially compared to what first century Jews expected or hoped for with respect to the resurrection. So the book of Daniel is one of the earliest expressions of this Jewish hope for the resurrection. And in the 12th chapter of Daniel, uh, it speaks of those who were resurrected shining like the stars. Okay. In the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, Jesus does not shine like the stars. He seems, again, relatively ordinary. You can still see the marks According to John and Luke, he still see the nail marks and the mark from the spear. Uh, so there's no um, embellishment. 
Some people would argue, well, but he does weird things with his body, right? He goes through locked doors. Uh, years ago, I remember somebody pointing out to me, well, Jesus does some interesting things with his body before the crucifixion, right? He walks on water. So you don't need, uh, even before the resurrection, uh, Jesus was doing interesting things with his body. And so apart from that, there's really very little embellishment, um, apart from the weird thing of him maybe appearing and disappearing. Um, he looks relatively ordinary for a person who was just crucified the day, a few days before. You also don't have in the gospel accounts the language of a vision or a dream or ecstasy. They're described as just relatively speaking, ordinary meetings, right? It's not visionary literature. Um, and most of the appearances appear happen in broad daylight, right? It's not something like at night, oh, they were tired, and so they were imagining things. It's just a regular, as regular as a resurrection appearance can be, right? Okay, so what about the possibility of them being hallucinations? Well, a common explanation for this is our common argument is that the disciples were they were expecting to, to see Jesus again, and so they convinced themselves, they worked themselves up, and they finally just made themselves believe that they had seen Jesus. Um, that's not the picture you get in the Gospels. Right? At the crucifixion, the disciples are scattered, they're terrified, they're demoralized. Um, they did not, they were not in a position to have this wish fulfillment. They were, they were not expecting to see Jesus again, even though he had told them that he would come back. In addition, as I already said, this, this, the fact that there were multiple appearances to multiple people over a lengthy period of time, that speaks against the possibility of hallucinations. And most obviously, Paul was not looking for Jesus to come back. He, in fact, he thought that the disciples were lying about that. Okay, so... One last set of historical considerations to think about with respect to the resurrection. So people, it's easy to fall into the notion of just thinking of the resurrection as this kind of amazing thing that just happened to happen um, to Jesus. But it's worth thinking about the context in which, in which this happened. Again, I'm appealing here to N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar from England. And what the disciples associated, what the early Christians associated Jesus' resurrection with was his status as the Messiah, as this long-hoped-for deliverer that God would send to Israel. Now, why is that odd? It's odd because crucifixion was the execution or the punishment that failed Messiahs received. Right, there, there, Jesus was not the only person in the first century to claim to be the Messiah. Josephus mentions a couple, there were several of them, and all the ones who failed ended up on a cross. Right? And none of the followers of those would-be messiahs claim he's back from the dead and therefore he's the Messiah. Right? What they would typically do is they would say, all right, guess that wasn't him, <laughs> let's look for another one. Right? In addition for first century Jews being uh, crucified was seen as being put under a curse. Right? And so it's very strange that the early Christians not only claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead, but said on the basis of this resurrection that he was, in fact, the Messiah. This is not what first century Christians 
typically believed or expected. Now, another strange thing about Jesus' resurrection is that first century Jews, not all of them, right? You have the Sadducees who didn't believe in life after death, didn't believe in an immortal soul, but many first century Jews did have a hope for the resurrection, and they hoped for a general resurrection at the end of time. Nobody was expecting just one guy <laughs> uh, in the middle of time to happen to come back. So how do you get from that general hope for a general resurrection to one specific figure in the middle of time being raised from the dead, and on the basis of that, a claiming that this man, in fact, was the Messiah, when he didn't really look like what most first century Jews expected out of the Messiah? So those, I think, are some of the, some of the best reasons that I think it's reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. As I said at the beginning, it's not a proof. I don't think you can prove that Jesus came back from the dead. Uh, and again, if you don't believe in miracles, if a person doesn't believe in miracles, none of what I said would persuade that person. Think back to the one who claimed to have seen a ghost, <laughs> the flat earthers. Um, Nothing will persuade you if you don't believe in miracles. Um, but I do think that it is reasonable to say that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's really important implications from that. It means that death does not have the last word. It means that as one of the hymns from the Eastern liturgy says, um, Christ is risen from the dead. By death he conquered death, and to those in the grave he granted life. It means that our bodies matter, that our bodies are an essential part of who we are, and this earth matters. God is not abandoning the earth, but rather he has promised to transform it into a new creation. And if by God's grace we remain faithful to him, as he is always faithful to us, he will grant us to participate in that victory one day. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Father Isaac. All right, we will now begin the 15-minute Q&A session. Please raise your hand, and I will call on you. Hi, um, thank you for talking about this. Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of go back and explain again your comment um, about how there weren't a lot of Old Testament references in the empty tomb. Yeah. I didn't really follow that. Okay, yeah. So this is N.T. Wright's argument that um, it's an argument that those accounts must be pretty early because they're pretty bare bones, right? And compare that with say, the Passion Narrative. Now, I'm not saying that the Passion Narrative, that the Gospel writer just made stuff up, but you probably had a longer period of time to reflect on what Jesus experienced and to interpret it through uh, writings of the Old Testament. So all four of the Gospels are saturated with imagery drawn from the Psalms, which is interesting because this, uh, who are the Psalms typically associated with in the Old Testament, you know? Yeah, David, right? So this is a subtle way of underscoring the notion that Jesus is the heir of David and this Messiah. Uh, and so the Passion Narratives have tons of allusions, allusions to and citations of the Old Testament. Then you get to, well, let's just take Mark as an example. Mark has plenty of that. Then you get to Mark chapter 16, and there's almost no, I can't think of a single allusion or reference to the Old Testament. And so the argument is that this must go back so a pretty early period, uh, and so it's probably a pretty reliable account of what happened, right? It hasn't been embellished um, 
uh, as some of the other accounts. Um, and I, I hesitate to use the word embellishment because that seems deceptive, but it hasn't been quite as interpreted. Flushed out. And yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Yep. I have a million questions. <laughs> okay. I remember one. The first one mm -hmm. is um, I remember Jesus says to Mary, Mary Magdalene, mm -hmm. that um, he says, don't touch me because mm -hmm. I haven't. Mm -hmm. What does he say? I haven't. I have not yet ascended to my father. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's that difference in his being. Do you know? Yeah. How to explain that? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, do not touch me is not necessarily the best um, translation. Uh, some people, many people have suggested that it's more like, do not cling to me. Yeah. Like, I'm not leaving yet. <laughs> I'll be around for a little bit of time. Right? So, but of course, then once, once he ascends, then he no longer is present to them in the same way that he is during those 40 days. And you have that one rare exception that he appears to Paul. Uh, Paul seems to think that it was, yeah, that he saw Jesus in his resurrected body. But that's the only appearance after the ascension that the New Testament refers to. But yeah, so he's saying, don't cling to me because I'm not leaving just yet. And, and also, you need to go tell the disciples. Yeah. So, St. Paul, mm -hmm. for some reason, I always imagine he had a vision of Jesus. So he actually says in his writings, which I have come so late to his writings, <laughs> you know, we focus on the Gospels, yeah. Wow, St. Paul's got so much. Mm -hmm. So he believed that, so he felt that it was the body, the figure he saw of Jesus, not a vision, not. Right, well, yeah, so in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he puts his encounter with Jesus at the end of a list of encounters, and the others are clearly resurrection appearances, right? And it's in a chapter in which he's arguing for the reality of the resurrection. Part of the reason you might think of it as a vision is because of the way that Luke interprets the encounter. Well, the eyes, but also the way that Luke interprets the encounter in the Acts of the Apostles. There it seems uh, possibly more like a vision. Um, and there, there could be reasons for Luke framing it that way, but Paul, in 1 Corinthians, uh, sees his encounter with Jesus as of the same category as that of Peter, that is the Twelve, and the others. All right. Other questions? All right, Johnny? Yes, so you talked about the difference between Jesus' resurrection and the stories of people who he didn't resurrect but raised yes. from the dead. Mm -hmm. This is less related to the resurrection of Jesus and more about that. Mm -hmm. like, how did, um, like, but how did Jesus decide when he was going to do that? Because like, mm -hmm. he performed certain miracles at the same time, why Lazarus, why I can't remember the other case. But, yeah. So the three that I mentioned are Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain, or her son rather, and then Lazarus. Um, with Jairus' daughter, Jairus comes to him and asks, he says, my daughter is sick to the point of death. Some of the Gospels say she's actually dead, others say she's on the point of dying, but regardless, she's dead before he gets there. So he does it there just in answer to the request of Jairus. Uh, with respect to the son of the widow of Nain, um, I think it's just a matter of compassion. People say, like, he thinks of what his own mother is going to experience. 
for a brief time, but nevertheless, right? And he sees this widow whose son has just died, and I think it's just an act of compassion. Um, Lazarus is his close friend, right? And he goes, and as are Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. And so he goes for them. Um, but it's interesting, um, there's, a, there's a fascinating article on, on that story by Richard Baucom, who's another British New Testament scholar, who suggests he goes knowing that that event is going to precipitate his crucifixion. Because if you recall in John, after he raises Lazarus, that's when the chief priests and the rest of the leaders say, we've got to put an end to this. Um, so Baucom suggests that, um, yeah, he does it out of love for his friend, but also, like, the depth of that love is knowing that that's going to lead to his own death. So, like, specific situations in the movie that would do that. Yeah. In certain scenarios. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like just different aspects of the circumstances involved moved him to do it. Yeah. I, I had heard that, and I, I like this at one this is a Jesuit who told me, that um, Jesus has this humility, and he's not, he's not overt. Mm-hmm. He's not, he never did the, the big things. That's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. And he didn't come back and say, no, no, no. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but uh, I, that really stuck with me. Uh, um, that, and that goes with my perception of mm-hmm. who he was. So this is in response to why he didn't show up to like his opponents? More that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't need to do this. I, I don't need to prove this. Yeah, so I certainly would not I certainly would not disagree that Jesus is humble, of course. Um, but he did do some flashy things during his lifetime. You know, raising Lazarus from the dead is not exactly a day-to-day thing, you know, walking on water, that sort of thing. Um, I would be more inclined to say that they wouldn't have accepted. Private thing, you know? hmm? That was his friend. People were all over him, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. I think he, like you say, he mm-hmm. didn't know if we so many people there, that was really... Mm. But his empathy for mm. a friend, it's not like, well, I'm going out to do this to this Roman general. Yeah, there, there might and be some of that as well. Mm-hmm. real empathy for the people who follow them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right in the back. Yeah. Well, as Thomas would say, Christian can be said in many ways. <laughs> right? I think anybody who has been baptized and doesn't believe um, that resurrection still would be because that contradicts the Pauline argument. Right. I suppose it would depend on whether they believe when they were baptized or not. If they were baptized thinking that it's all just a bunch of junk, then I don't think a baptism would work because, yeah, I do think faith is integral to that. But, say, people who at one point did believe and have decided to go for these other explanations, I would say they're still Christians, but they have their... (laughs) 
badly misled about what Christianity is about. Okay. Could you expand upon like the incorruptible nature of Jesus' body mm-hmm. when he resurrected? Mm-hmm. And also, I've always been interested. Mm-hmm. You know, when he says like Thomas, like put your hand, like uh, put your fingers in my hand, like mm-hmm. the wounds. Mm-hmm. Does he still have like the wounds from scourging as well? Mm-hmm. Like the rest of his mm-hmm. body heal and his like the nail wounds and the gash in the side not heal? Or I don't know. What's your take on that? Um. Well, the Gospels don't tell us about uh, whether there were any other wounds on the back. I suspect that the, the, the nail marks and the spear mark is to show that it was the same person, it was the same one who had just died a couple of days before. Um, and also, I think, um, as signs of his mercy and love for us, like as they, they're permanent signs of what he did for us. Um, as far as it being incorruptible, what I mean is that yeah, it's mysterious, right? To have like to have still like a gash in your side and in your hands. I don't think that they were bleeding or anything like that. Um, but yeah, the, the New Testament writers say that he's conquered death, that he never has to suffer death again. So I take that to mean like you probably couldn't cut him again. Yeah. He wouldn't get sick, that sort of thing. And um, and Paul speaks of this as as the first fruits. It's a down payment. That is what we also hope for, which interestingly, the Gospels don't really make that um, extrapolation. So if we in heaven are reunited with our, oh, like upon the second coming, reunited mm-hmm. with our bodies, like it was that, that for Jesus, uh, like reunited with his body in its like glorified form, Well, okay, so this is the really difficult question about resurrection when it comes to us. With Jesus, it's fairly easy because his his corpse was in the tomb for probably less than 48 hours. So it's not hard to think of that, the body body that was sitting in there, being revivified and transformed. The church fathers talk about this all the time, like, okay, uh, somebody, like, dies... He's eaten by an animal, another person eats the animal, you know, who's, you know, where do the atoms go, right? You know, are the parts of the person. And St. Augustine says, look, if God can create from nothing, he can sort it out. Don't worry about it. Um, But, yeah, so it's, it's a difficult question, though, because, yeah, what about people whose bodies just completely are assimilated into other things? That sort of thing. And it's important because our bodies are part of who we are, right? We're not angels. And by that, I don't mean that we do bad things. But we're not angels that way, too. Um, but human beings are a composite of soul and body. Right? And so for us, this is an argument that St. Thomas actually makes, that for us to be fully redeemed and saved, we need the resurrection. We need our bodies back uh, to be who God created us to be. Uh, but how that works out is a really messy, complicated, philosophical question. Thank you. Yeah. All right, yeah. Yeah, so this, I guess this is more of like a theological question. Mm-hmm. But, so Jesus, in the resurrection, um, the belief is that Jesus sent a glorified body. Um, mm-hmm. And then, but you also spoke to like the ordinariness of the mm-hmm. experiences. It wasn't shining, right? So mm-hmm. I'm trying to connect that to like the transfiguration mm-hmm. in the Gospels. Yeah. And like, was his appearance in the transfiguration like, a sort of was that itself a resurrection of the same 
was the same process that happened after, or was it just a, a prefigurement, or, or I guess is there like a theological understanding? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, th I think it's a prefigurement of what he'll look like in the fullness of his glory at the end. It's interesting, though, people will say, some scholars will argue that the transfiguration is a resurrection account retrojected into the life of Jesus, <clears throat> into his earthly life, right? None of the other resurrection accounts describe the resurrection in that way, so that actually seems like a weak argument to me. But I think it's, um, yeah, it's a prefigurement. It's a, it's a kind of a foretaste of what, what his fully glorified body will look like in the end. Um, but I suspect, I also suspect that in the resurrection appearances, um, perhaps he hid some of that so that they wouldn't be more terrified than they already were. Also, for them to see that it was him, like, especially, I mean, not that the wounds would come and go, but, like, seeing, he had to be recognizable to them. Um, and so I suspect that's part of why uh, they were relatively ordinary. I guess it is, is the belief that, or I guess are there opinions on, on scholars on that, mm -hmm. if, the pre, if the transfigured body was of the same nature as mm -hmm. the resurrected body? Mm -hmm. You know, like... Or was it purely yeah. visual? Well, I would take it to be just a vision. Uh, I mean, the other option would be just that it was glorified for a brief moment, and then it went back to being an ordinary body. And that doesn't seem to make sense to me, right? Because if it were the same as the resurrected body, then how did he even die on the cross? Because right, yeah, right. the resurrected body is, you know, it can't be destroyed in any way. Um, so I would be inclined to see that as a vision, um, showing something about his destiny and about our destiny as well. Thank you. All right, any other questions? Yep. Um, so kind of on the topic of the glorified body, did St. Thomas say something about like whether you could do autopsies and maybe like, I guess he would have said something about like organ donation. <laughs> kind of like along those lines of like what you're allowed to do uh -huh. to a body. Like, because of, like, the regression Yeah, um, I don't think St. Thomas addresses it. As far as I know, he does talk about, like, different characteristics of the glorified body, which he gets from Paul in 1 Corinthians, because Paul talks about what the resurrected body will be like. Um, no, that is another interesting and difficult problem for the resurrection. Like, say, I donated a kidney to, you know, my cousin or something. Like, do I get it back when I'm raised? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. Um, I would say in Augustine that, like, God can sort it out. <laughs>